We're going to look at Isaiah 53, and then we're going to take communion afterwards. Um, If you don't know Isaiah 53, um, because there are a lot of chapters in Isaiah, let's face it, and you might not have come across this one. Um, We're going to read it, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it, and I'm going to keep my eye on the, the time. I'm going to take my watch off and put it on here. Speakers do that to make it look as though they care about the time. And uh, so I'm putting it there, and uh, we'll have time for communion afterwards. Isaiah 53. Uh, It's page 596, if you've not found it. Let me give you some context first. I was going to do this afterwards, but I'll, I'll give you the context first. Isaiah, if you're not familiar with him as a character... Uh, he lived about 700 years before Jesus was born. And uh, he, he lived in Israel, so the, the two kingdoms, uh, there were two kingdoms then rather than one, they'd split by that point. And uh, the southern kingdom, Israel, um, it had ups and downs, more downs than ups. And generally speaking, the people in Israel and the people leading Israel, in particular the kings, were not great at sticking to God's ways. And um, Isaiah, his, his writing spans quite a, a big time span. And uh, he has several kings under him. And he starts off in the early part of Isaiah, and his heart is broken and breaking continually for the people of Israel and for the fact that they have moved so far from God and his promises and his desires for them as a nation and as a people. And he writes a lot about this. And he he also, in the middle of that, has the most incredible insight and revelations into who God is. Um, He sees God in a way that actually nobody else, certainly in the whole of the the Old Testament, had ever come across him before, had ever seen him in that way. Um, If you read Isaiah 6, he says, I saw God, I saw the Lord. I went into the the temple, not just to to do my kind of normal thing, but I saw God there. Nobody else saw him, but Isaiah saw him. And that changed his whole perspective on the dynamic between Israel, who were really not following God in the way that he'd given them to follow, and God and his love, not his, his judgment so much, but his love. And it's incredible when you read these Uh, these people, not just him, but others as well, the insight they have into what God is like. And all of this is before Jesus. All of this is before the Holy Spirit is given. They didn't have the incredible privileges that we have. And yet it's here, written in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, it's part of a, a, um, a number of passages in the later part of Isaiah called the Servant Songs. And they they might have been put to music, but it's writing about a servant. And we've been singing about the king this morning. We've been singing about the glory and wonder of the king. And it's right that we do, because that's who we worship. That's who he is now. But he came as a servant. And he came as a servant, and he suffered in that act of serving. And most supremely, perhaps, he suffered in the crucifixion. And Isaiah 53 is a picture of the crucifixion, except it's written 700 years before it happened. In fact, it's written 700 years or so before Jesus was even born. So as you are listening to it or or following it in your own reading, bear that in mind. 
It's the equivalent of somebody writing about something that's happening now when uh, Richard II was on the throne. It's that kind of time span. All right, if you're a historian and I, and I was out by 100 years here or there, please forgive me, but, uh, you know, Robin Hood and all that. You know, think of, think of Robin Hood, it's probably easier. You know, Robin Hood, bows and arrows, um, Kevin Costner, and, and you've got the idea. Okay, Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he didn't open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He'd done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal, he was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and his Lord's good plan will prosper in his hand. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I'll give him the honours of a victorious soldier, because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels, he bore the sins of many, and interceded for rebels. Okay, I've got a few points I'd like to try and draw out of this. Right at the beginning. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? The Passion translates it as, Who has believed our revelation? It's as though Isaiah is writing and he's just saying, You won't believe this. You won't believe this. And then he goes on to tell them things that they won't believe. They clearly didn't believe because they didn't really pay a lot of attention to it. It's a question we can ask. Who believes our revelation? So then the question you have to ask is, what is your revelation? A revelation is something that is revealed to you. If you have a revelation of something, somebody reveals it to you. If you're watching a, a, 
conjuring trick and you're going, how did that happen? And then they spill the beans and they, they show you how it did it. Oh, well, it's because we had this over here and this over here. And you go, oh, wow. Well, I'm not likening the gospel to a conjuring trick. It's okay. But God from heaven has revealed something to each of us. Just think about that. You know, this, this wasn't a general call. It wasn't God standing on a stage, rolling back the curtain, saying, look, everybody, here it is. It was to each of us personally that God revealed something. He showed you as an individual. He picked you out. You might think you picked him out, and you did, but he also picked you out. And he has, he has deposited something from heaven into your life. It's a revelation. It's given to you personally for you to carry. Who has believed my revelation? That's a question you can ask yourself. You know, we, we just announced about the, um, the Christmas events, the toddler event and uh, um, the VIP event. If you help in those things, whoever you are, if you have encountered God, if you've met Jesus, if you've just said, Jesus, I only met you a minute ago, but I, I realize you've given me something to tell everybody else about, to show, to reveal. If it's been revealed to you, you can reveal it to other people. That's the privilege. Okay? You don't get to reveal it in quite the same way that God revealed it to you. It's not like that. But you, you carry something, and you each carry something, each of you. The extent to which other people see it depends on how confident you are in carrying it. Have you met those people who just are a bit too much? You know, just they're a bit over the top. They love Jesus too much. Have you met those people? They're not all evangelists. Most of them are. But they're not all evangelists. They just, I mean, that's the definition of a fanatic, isn't it? Somebody who loves Jesus more than you. And the only reason they're like that, the only reason they carry that kind of confidence, if it is confidence, sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's not real confidence, it's just um, bravado. But if, it, if it's intimacy that builds that, and you encounter that. What you're encountering is, is heaven reflected through them. That's what people get from Isaiah 53. We get his revelation. It was revealed to this man over two and a half thousand years ago. And we get it today. Who's believed our message? Who has believed our revelation? Or to whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? Let's go on a bit further. As I said, there's this huge contrast here in what we read about the servant here and what we're just coming to celebrate at Christmas. Joy to the world! The king is here. And we go, yeah, yeah, that's great. And it is great. But we know that he was born in that way to live through this in order to, to live in glory in heaven. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing attracted us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. Anybody remember that bit in the New Testament where it says Jesus was the most joyful person that ever lived? He was anointed with the oil of joy. Remember that bit? He had, he had an anointing of joy. It was fun being around Jesus. 
Nobody ever looked at Jesus and said, oh, he is so grumpy. He clearly wasn't a Christian. You have to think about that a little bit, okay? He was so joyful. And yet here it says, he was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. Why was he acquainted with grief? Verse 4. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. They weren't his sorrows. They were our sorrows. He willingly took those. Now, in the crucifixion, you can see this. The rest of the time, you look at Jesus, and he... If you read through his life, you'll see at times he was deeply troubled. Often by the hardness of people's hearts. Often it was the Pharisees, or those who, who were of the... They were kind of professionally religious... And there was something so hard in their hearts that was not receptive. He also experienced it in Nazareth, which is where he grew up, because they all looked at him and they said, oh, it's just Jesus. It's just that carpenter. Uh, it's just the guy that builds things. He's not special. And Jesus looked at that, and, and he, he just couldn't work, because there, there was no atmosphere for him to work with. There was nothing for him to work with, no no openness to the kingdom of God, to the rulership and kingship of God. That's what he carried. And the reason it was there in our lives, in their lives, in everybody else's lives, was because of verse 5. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. Now, I don't need to tell you this, or probably most of you, I don't need to, to tell you this. You know, We've all screwed up. We've all messed up, and that's why... We find forgiveness so wonderful because we just think, oh, all of that's gone. You mean it's just completely gone? And the answer is, the answer is yes. The reason this passage came to mind when I was thinking, uh, knowing I having to, to speak uh, in a few weeks' time was uh, when I was at school, um, I was in the school choir and uh, we sang Handel's Messiah. And if you know Handel's Messiah, uh, which I mean, I'm not a big, I know classical music buff, but there are some bits that just uh, I adore, and Handel's Messiah is one. And there's a piece in one of the choruses where it takes uh, this passage from the, uh, the authorized version, and it says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's a beautiful piece of music. It's very short. Um, it's, it's where it fits in into the whole thing. It's just beautiful to, to be able to sing, and uh, it, it literally just brings me to, to tears listening to it, because now I understand it better. That the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the transgression, the rebellion of each of us. He laid it on Jesus. It wasn't just the stuff you'd done wrong. It's the inclination that we have that is within our sinful nature to run away from God and to, to rebel against him. All of that was laid on Jesus. Jesus died. Jesus came back to life again. What does that mean? It's all of that stuff that was laid on him, all of your stuff that was laid on him, it's gone. All got that? Some of you are not too sure. What that means is there's now no condemnation. When you feel guilt between you and God, not when you upset your husband, wife, brother, sister, son, daughter, and, and then you should feel guilty about that. Just say sorry and they'll forgive you. 
But it's not exactly the same as when you feel guilt between you and God, when you feel shame. Because what you're feeling is something that is not coming from God. What you're feeling is something that is, you're being lied to about. Because it says, it says it here, the Lord laid it all on him. Have you noticed, by the way, that this passage, written 700 years before Jesus, is written in the past tense? Did you notice that? 700 years before Jesus, it's written as though it's a done deal. Uh, here we are, 2000 and, what is it now? 2019. Oh, doesn't time go quickly? What happened to the 1970s, eh? Um, <laughs> when we worry about it then, we forget that it's, it's a done deal. The, the cross is effective once and for all. The forgiveness of Jesus, once and for all. When those things come to trouble you, don't let them. They have no authority to do that. Shame has no authority in your life. Guilt between you and God has no authority. The reason we're doing communion after the talk is because I simply wanted us to be reminded of that. When we share in this, that's what we're saying. We're saying, shame, no room in my life. Guilt, no room in my life. We affirm what God has already done. We don't make it happen. We just say, hey, I am receiving this again. Why do we do it often? Because we need to remember it often. It's not just that. It's so much more than that. But we need to remember it often. We need to remind ourselves that we don't live in that darkness. We live in revelation. So remember what I was saying 10 minutes ago? We all have revelation. That's light. That's what this passage is saying. And he's saying 700 years before it happened, it's already a done deal. Because it's already in the heart of God. The Father was carrying this in his heart since before time. All that, that he gave to the Israelites as kind of prefiguring of that, the sacrificial system and all of that, it was, it was pointing toward this. But every now and then you read what somebody writes, David's another one, Moses is another one, several of the, the prophets or people live in a way where they know this is, this is only a reflection of something much, much greater that's in the heart of God. And what Christmas celebrates, Christ is the anointing, Mass is the arrival. It's the arrival of the anointing. It's God going, yeah, now it's time. Now it's time for Jesus to die. Because when he dies, he comes back to life again. And that's what this is. That's what we do. So when we do it in uh, a few moments' time, what we're going to do, we're going to do it a bit differently. We're going to invite you to, to come up. If, if, like me, you're somebody that would struggle to get here, either get a friend to, to go and get you something and take it back, or um, maybe you'll already be healed. You can just run up. Um, wouldn't that be good? It would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, because it reaffirms that. And we need to reaffirm it. There's a lot in the world that will tell us otherwise. You know, it's really interesting with this election going on. Um, well, it's not really interesting, actually. Some of it's a bit tedious. But what happens is um, suddenly we all get consumed by what are the important issues. You know, this is an important issue. This is an important issue. And they're important issues. I'm, I'm not denying that. 
But they're not the important issue. The important issue we need to settle in our hearts every day, every morning, before we get up and start dealing with all the other issues. That gives us a, the freedom to, to get the right perspective on all the others. Uh, let's go on to verse 9. He, he'd done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. He was born from a virgin womb and he was buried in a virgin tomb. Do you like that? It's not original. I'd love it to have been. It's good, but I like that. He was born from a virgin womb and he was buried in a virgin tomb. He would, if there'd been no sin, ever, Jesus would not have needed to have come in that way. It only needed one, one instance. As it was one instance, it kind of opened the door to, to everything else. But it's because he'd done no wrong, he was buried in that way. But listen, let's read on. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. It was a good plan for God to act in a way that to us seems, how is, how is that like God? And quite a lot of people have really got themselves into, into theological knots over this. I think the main thing is because it's with our minds that we're trying to understand something that is bigger than our minds can cope with. But actually, you know, if you've got a, a child and your child needs an operation and you send them to the, the surgeon, the surgeon is going to do some damage to, to your child. But you do it because you know that's the best thing for your child. God voluntarily, in, I mean, Jesus was, was not just the son of God, he was God. He was a reflection of God and he voluntarily made himself an offering for that. But look, look at the, the fruit of this. So this is verse 10. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. When his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He'll enjoy a long life. Okay, I don't think this is talking about Jesus alone. This is talking about those who are in Jesus. This is talking about us. Now, it's a little bit complicated when you start to, to look at it closely. Because remember, Isaiah is writing about the nation of Israel. But earlier on in his prophecy, he's already got the message from God that this servant who came was going to do something bigger than liberating just Israel. He's already got that going around in his, in his mind and in his heart. So what Isaiah is talking about here, what he is seeing, what God's... God can show him things because Isaiah is open to receiving them. Isaiah is no different to you or me, really, in that sense. It's just that Isaiah was, was asking questions. And Isaiah was really wanting to communicate to his people. So he's saying he will enjoy, this is the servant, this is Messiah, Jesus. He will enjoy a good long life. The Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. And when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. Okay, I think this is talking about the church. This is talking about us. This is talking about you and me. 
we wouldn't be able to come into this position had Jesus not suffered. But because he did suffer, he released us so effectively from everything that could stop us entering into God's good plan that there's now no restriction. And so our opportunity every day, no matter how long we have known anything about God, whether we'd been following him for some time or whether we're right at the start of a journey, there's something more wonderful to enter into every single day. That doesn't mean life's going to be a bed of roses. I'm not pretending that, so don't get the wrong impression. But it does mean that the opportunity is always there, no matter what the circumstances. When, when we come into him, we enter into this process. And when he sees us entering into this process, he is satisfied. Jesus looks at you and he goes, it was worth it. You're welcome. It was worth it. Is that, is that Jesus calling? Say, I'm ready. I'm ready. I thought the last trump would be a bit louder, but... Oh, there it is. <laughs> just imagine for a moment. Just sit quietly. Close your eyes if it helps. Imagine Jesus being satisfied over you. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. The things that you do in his name, you can only do because of his anguish. And when he looks at you, he goes, oh, boy, was that worth it. Was that worth it. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. He will bear all their sins. Jesus opened up the whole of God's good plan for us to be able to access. One of the things that can happen when we forget that and when we don't see everything fulfilled the way that we long for, and let's face it, we don't. One of the things that can happen is we begin to lose heart and we begin to get disappointed and we begin to stop believing. That's why what Becky did this morning was so, so great. I thought the, the way the team led us, just it led us to that point of reaffirming and that's what we're going to do very shortly we're reaffirming we're reaffirming our confidence we're reaffirming that miracles do happen see I was uh, in the front had my hand up and I'm going to tell you what I had my hand up for I had my hand up for something that I've been holding on to for decades and it's this that we would be a body of people that see the release of God's miraculous love in Worcester And uh, now I know sometimes we've seen that, and some of you have seen it, seen it more than me. But we we have to we can't stand still. Standing still is not an option. You have to progress or you regress. And when we're not progressing, circumstances and the the 
the inner lack of confidence that, that we're dealing with the whole time, that can sometimes convince us that these things don't happen. And uh, just before we, we take communion, I want, us to, I want us to clean out the crud, really. Um, so I want us to take an opportunity between you and the Lord to say, is, is there anything, Lord, where I feel I don't believe you can do this? I mean, I can say, you know, it's like my... Let's take a practical example. So I have some problems with my hip at the moment, as you know. And uh, probably most of you, very reasonably, are thinking, uh, it's going to be great when Graham gets a hip replacement. And, um, uh, and it would be great. They could do a great job of fixing it. No doubt at all. I'm not... I'm not... I don't see that as in any way an inferior way to, to continue. Absolutely not. But there's something in here that's holding on for God doing it differently. I know God's glorified in, in surgery. I have no problem. I've been in hospital. I know what it's like. I've, I've received health care. I'm not anti-health care. But I'm pro seeing God do something. And that, that's a hard work sometimes. It's hard work hanging on to something day after day after day after day, and just coming back again and again and saying, I trust you, I trust you, my heart's open, I trust you. And we have to keep our hearts tender, and when things come in that detenderize our hearts, we don't recognize them at first, but it's the fruit of them, it's the things that we say, the things that we think that let us know that they're there. And I want us to take an opportunity just to say, Lord, we're sorry. And, and here's why. It's not because it prevents God doing things. It's because we want Jesus. I want Jesus to look at us and go, oh, that's so good. I mean, he always looks at us and goes, that's so good. But I just want, I, I want him to be so attracted to what we're doing that he can't help but keep away from us. And he just turns up and he's like, oh, there's somebody, I'm just going to do that anyway. I'm just going to turn up and do that because I like being there. Because those people want me. Those people expect me to, to be there. So my impossible thing I was praying for is, Lord, make us a people like that. Make us a people like that. And it's, it's you know, I've been part of the leadership of, of this church long enough for it to be my fault. It's, I mean that, I really, you know, it's, it's to do with leadership. So, and I'm, I'm not beating myself up about that. What I'm saying is, look, let's not feel, let's not get in the dumps about this. Let's just say, hey, we're human and we're trying to understand God who's divine. We don't get it right the whole time. So let's just clear the whiteboard and start again. 